Well, our Bible reading this morning is 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 25. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 25. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses, so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime, as if in battle, and with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember you have with you Shimei, son of Gerar the Benjamite, from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me, the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned forty years over Israel, seven years in Hebron, and thirty-three in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother. Bathsheba asked him, Do you come peacefully? He answered, Yes, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may say it, she replied. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king. But things changed, and the kingdom has gone to my brother, for it has come to him from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. You may make it, she said. So he continued, Please ask Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. I have one small request to make of you, she said. Do not refuse me. The king replied, Make it, my mother. I will not refuse you. 
So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. King Solomon answered his mother, Why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he's my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiathar the priest and Joab son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. And now, as surely as the Lord lives, he who has established me securely on the throne of my father David, and has founded a dynasty for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah, and he died. Well, just so far in God's holy and inerrant word. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider this word together, that you would open our hearts and minds to understand it, and that when we finish, we might know that we've heard the voice of the living God. Amen. Well, friends, this chapter is a perfect screenplay for Hollywood or Netflix. A priest is defrocked in disgrace, uh, and there is the execution of a royal prince, the execution of a general, and the execution of a political activist. One of them is even executed in church. So you might be wondering why a text as violent as this is even in the Bible. Uh, How could the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ possibly be involved with any of this? Well, in order to understand what the chapter might be saying to us, we need to be reminded that the books of 1 and 2 Kings were written to answer two important questions. First, will God keep his promise? The particular promise in view was the promise given to David by God that David's throne would be secured and that David's son would sit on that throne. And the second question which the book of 1 Kings is designed to answer follows on from the first question. Because if God is going to keep his promise, how exactly is he going to do it? And if we can understand that, we might well understand something of how God establishes his kingdom in the church today. Now what we saw last week in chapter 1 is that the first part of God's promise started to be fulfilled when Solomon became king. And I start with that because God promised David that when David's son came to the throne, God would establish his kingdom. You can look that up later in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 13. And very significantly, we find that word established appearing several times in our passage this morning. I want to draw your attention to two of those references. So look with me at verse 12. In verse 12 we read, So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. And we find it then again in verse 46, at the very end of the chapter. Verse 46 we read, The kingdom was now firmly established 
in Solomon's hands. And the author of 1 Kings has picked up this language very deliberately in order to show us that God's promise has been partially fulfilled. And in our passage this morning, we're told how it was that the kingdom under Solomon came to be firmly established. The chapter divides into two rather unequal sections. In verses 1 to 12, we have what I'm calling the preparation of the king. And then in verse 13 to the end, we've got the protection of the kingdom. And when we're done by God's grace, I hope you'll see that in spite of all the blood and guts, there are some very significant lessons for us this morning. So we begin with the preparation of the king, verses 1 to 12. As the chapter begins, David realises he's about to die. But before he dies, he wants to give Solomon some final instructions. The sadness here is that David has left this so late in the day, because almost all of the problems David had to deal with during his kingship and most of the problems that Solomon now has to pick up and address stem from David's failure to do this very thing with all his sons before it was too late. But the fact that David gives this final charge to Solomon I think is a kind of spiritual closure on David's own life because it isn't just about David giving his son wise advice. It's a form of repentance by David because these are some of the things that David himself failed to do. So here we have, I think, a glimmer of hope about David's spiritual condition as death draws near. That at the end of the day, he is willing to give moral and spiritual instruction to the son who will sit on his throne. And in these verses, that instruction comes under two different headings. First, in verses 1 to 4, there is instruction that David gives as a father to his son. And then in verses 5 to 9, there is instruction that David gives as a king to his successor. So notice first the instruction he gives to Solomon as a father to a son. Verse 2, David says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Now that's a command that's repeated in a number of places in the Bible. So what was the first thing that God said to Joshua at the start of his leadership? He said, you've got to be strong. We find the Apostle Paul saying the same thing to the Christians at Corinth. He says, if you're going to restore unity in the church, you need to be strong. And here, David, speaking as a father to his son, says, if you're going to live for God and serve God, you must start by asking God to make you spiritually strong. Now, friends, is this a word to parents today? Because I think Christian parents are increasingly aware that we're sending our children out into a world that is morally terrifying. We know that if our children are known to be Christians at school, 
they're quite likely to be persecuted and bullied. So this word of David to Solomon is an example for Christian parents today because there will probably come a moment when you will have to say to your children or your grandchildren if you're going to live for God out there you're going to need courage and we need to let that sink in and allow it to inform our prayers for our children and our grandchildren. But then David continues in verse 2 Show yourself a man by which he means be a man after God's own heart as I once was but which I later failed to be. And how do you do that? Verse 3 By observing what the Lord your God requires walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands his laws and requirements. Now let's pause on that for just a moment because what David is saying to Solomon is that the way of pleasing God is the way of scrupulous obedience to the word of God and to the commands of God. Now the problem is that as soon as the commandments of God are even mentioned today people get really twitchy. We're nervous about saying to anybody today you should keep the commandments of God. And I suggest that it's generally true that parents today don't encourage their children to keep God's commandments because in most cases they themselves gave up keeping them years ago. But the sadness here is that if we read the commandments of God that were given to Moses at Mount Sinai we quickly realise that they're meant for our good. They're loving uh, directions of our Heavenly Father to children that he knows are sinful and likely to go astray. And God is saying to them, look, this is the way of security and blessing. If you turn away from it, you will soon find yourself in a moral maze, and disaster and misery are sure to follow. So we shouldn't be ashamed to follow David's example in the encouragements we give to one another and to our children because ultimately the only safe way to live in our world is within the boundaries of God's commands. So here David says to Solomon walk in his ways keep his decrees and commands his laws and requirements so that you may prosper and so that the Lord may keep his promise to me. Now that sounds very much like a conditional promise, doesn't it? We know that God makes promises to us in grace, but there are all kinds of promises in the Bible that God gives specifically to those people who are prepared to obey him. So think, for example, of the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples that those who obey him will enjoy the kind of fellowship with Christ that you can't know if you're living in disobedience to him. John 14 verse 15 and following is just one example. It's the same in our human relationships. If you're alienated from someone for whatever reason, it's impossible to enjoy their presence and their fellowship and their blessing. And if that's true in human relationships, how much more is it true about our relationship with God? 
But notice this great principle that David underlines for Solomon. He says, do this so that you may prosper. The principle here is that spiritual obedience is the way to spiritual prosperity. Now, of course, we don't use that language the way we used to. You don't hear Christians today talking about people whose souls are prospering. We might talk about someone prospering materially because they've done well in their job, but David isn't talking about that. He's talking about spiritual prosperity. Perhaps one of the reasons the church in the West is so weak and ineffective today is because the people in them have enjoyed so much material prosperity that they don't think their spiritual prosperity matters very much. But the spiritual prosperity that gives us assurance that we're in fellowship with God comes from walking in childlike obedience to the commandments of our Heavenly Father. There's no other way. And the only way that's going to happen is if we become sensitive to God's will because we've immersed ourselves in God's word. And God's word has become the atmosphere in which we live our daily lives. But then there's a second dimension to David's counsel here. And it's not something any of us really want to think about. This is the counsel that David gives to Solomon as king, and you'll find it in verses 5 to 9. It's focused on three people. The positive instruction in verse 7 concerns the sons of Barzillai of Gilead. In 2 Samuel we're told that Barzillai had been generous and helpful to David, that his family had stood with him when David was being persecuted by Absalom. And because of that, David instructs Solomon to make sure that Barzillai's family is looked after. So that's great, we like that. But there are two other characters here who are to receive the opposite. In verse 5 it's Joab, and later on in verse 8 it's Shimei, son of Gerar the Benjamite. And they're to be dealt with more severely. Solomon is not to allow Joab's grey head to go down to the grave in peace and Shimei is to be dealt with even more drastically because Solomon is to bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Now what's this all about? Joab had been David's great military commander but Joab was a man of ruthless efficiency. He was David's hitman. Whenever David needed a nasty piece of work done, he looked in Joab's direction. But Joab had gone way beyond what David had commanded by murdering the two men mentioned in verse 5. They had been David's allies. But Joab knew they were also rivals for his job in the army and he murdered them in cold blood. Shimei was the man in 2 Samuel 16 who had called down curses on David when he was fleeing from Absalom and David had sworn that he would not kill him himself but Shimei would eventually have to face the consequences. Now we'll pick up some of the implications in the second part of the chapter 
But for the time being, just notice the context in which David gives these instructions. In verse 9, David says to Solomon, You are a man of wisdom. So, in executing these drastic judgments, David expects Solomon to exercise wisdom. And that's important because it's telling us David is not out for revenge. No, David is simply concerned about the establishment of the kingdom under Solomon. And David sees these two men as a threat. Now, we obviously need to be careful before we rush to apply this text to our situation today, because our context is different. So listen to me carefully here. Under the Old Covenant, the Kingdom of God was a nation-state. It was Israel. You could see it on a map. So Joab and Shimei had to be dealt with in this particular way in order to secure the Kingdom as a nation-state. But that is not our situation today. Because under the New Covenant, the Kingdom of God is not a nation-state. It's not Israel. Today, the kingdom of God is followers of the Lord Jesus scattered throughout the world. It's Christians gathering together under the authority of God's word in local churches like we're doing this morning. So our situation is very different. But there is an application for us which the New Testament picks up. Because what had to be done physically to Joab and Shimei in order to preserve the kingdom when the kingdom was a nation-state, needs to be done spiritually among the new covenant people of God in order to preserve the kingdom of God among us. And the New Testament picks up that principle and applies it to the rather painful process of discipline in the local church. So, for example... The Apostle Paul says to the church, there may be times when you'll have to commit people who've been part of your fellowship to Satan. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 5. What he means by that is that you might need to place them outside the spiritual borders of the church, both for their own good and in order to preserve the kingdom of God in the fellowship. The New Testament is very hot on the issue. So, for example, it says this needs to be done with false teachers because false teaching will destroy the church. And Paul and others say you've got to deal with that. It'll be painful. But Paul says if you don't, the church will find a poison eating into its soul that spreads like gangrene until eventually you have a dead church. And you can read about that in 2 Timothy 2 verse 17. There are many examples today. This week I was reading about a famous mega church. It was planted in Australia in the 1980s and grew rapidly. Eventually it spread around the world. Apparently at their peak there were something like half a million people either attending church in person or listening online. But in recent months, a series of scandals in the leadership has caused many of their churches to close their doors. But the interesting thing is, the scandals themselves aren't the issue. 
The real issue has been false teaching. One of their former pastors says that there was never any systematic teaching on the doctrine of sin. So the gospel they've been preaching is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And of course people loved it because with that gospel their lives don't have to change. So it's hardly surprising that for years their churches were packed. But the problem of course is that is not the gospel. And until recently no one challenged it. Maybe they thought it would be too painful to deal with. So the poison spread. And the result is dead churches and, and hurting people. So, although we're no longer in a kingdom of a physical nature like Israel with physical kings, I, I hope you can see that there is actually an application of this very painful instruction that David gives to Solomon. So that's the first thing this morning, the preparation of the king. But now we move on to the protection of the kingdom in verses 13 to 46. Now what we find here is Solomon disposing of four threats to the kingdom. I'll try and run through them fairly quickly and then we'll consider what this might be saying to us. First, in verses 13 to 25, there is a family threat. This, of course, is Adonijah who goes to Bathsheba and says, I'd like to have that young woman who looked after David, Abishag the Shunammite, as my wife. Won't you help me? Now in those days for a man to take as his wife a woman who belonged to a previous king was a way of claiming the throne for himself. Last week we saw that Adonijah failed in his first attempt to become king. But he clearly thinks he's still got a good chance. So he goes to the person he thinks will give him the greatest leverage and says to, to Bathsheba, verse 15, All Israel looked to me as their king. But things changed, which of course is a massive understatement. But then he says, Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And Bathsheba says, You may make it. Now friends, that's something you should never do. We don't know why Bathsheba said that. But if someone comes to you, even a member of your family, and says, Will you do what I ask? The answer to that is always, well, it depends what you ask. But Bathsheba didn't do that. And she finds herself caught up in this situation and goes to speak to the king. Now, Solomon doesn't explode in a fit of rage because he wanted Abishag for himself. No, what happens is that Solomon can see what's really going on here. And what's going on is that Adonijah is trying to muscle his way onto the throne. You may remember last week at the end of chapter 1 and verse 52 that Solomon said, if Adonijah shows himself to be a worthy man, meaning I think if he shows himself to be repentant, well not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Well here, Solomon recognises that Adonijah hasn't changed, he hasn't repented, he's still a threat to God's plan. And to protect the kingdom, 
Solomon has him put to death. So the family threat is removed. Then second in verses 26 and 27, Solomon removes the spiritual threat. Verse 26. To Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go back to your fields in Anatoth. You deserve to die. Well, he did deserve to die because he'd committed treason. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now. So notice the death sentence is still hanging over him. I won't put you to death now because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father David and shared all my father's hardships. What's he doing? Well, he's saying to the high priest, your behaviour disqualifies you from holding office. doesn't necessarily disqualify you from belonging to the kingdom and it doesn't necessarily disqualify you from future service in the kingdom. But it disqualifies you from holding office in the kingdom today. Now that principle still applies to us in the church. When a pastor fails in some significant way, it's appropriate that the church remove us from office without necessarily removing us from the church. Because removal from office is not the same thing as removal from fellowship. And here, Abiathar is removed from office and sent back to his fields as an act of discipline. And it's very significant, I think, for the security of the kingdom because Abiathar had been involved in an attempt to frustrate the purposes of God. But he was a high priest. So this is very appropriate. Then in verses 28 to 35, we find the removal of the threat of blackmail. This is Joab, and we read in verse 28, When the news reached Joab, who had conspired with Adonijah, though not with Absalom, he fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. King Solomon was told that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. Then Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, go strike him down. So Benaiah entered the tent of the Lord and said to Joab, the king says, come out. But he answered, no, I will die here. Now Joab had been involved in Adonijah's conspiracy against Solomon. But what's happening here is that Joab is being executed not because of his part in the coup, but because of the murders he'd committed during David's reign. But I suggest there's something else in the background here. Because you may remember that it was Joab who under David's instruction sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah into the heat of battle so that he would be killed. Essentially, David's instruction to Joab was I'm sending Uriah to you and I want you to make sure he doesn't come back to me. And the point is that among the people at court in Jerusalem there were only a handful of people who knew the deepest and darkest secrets of David's life and that in fact David was an accessory to murder. 
One of them was Nathan, but we know Nathan was committed to Solomon. Another was Bathsheba, and as his mother, she was obviously committed to Solomon. But the third person was Joab. He was the only person who had the potential to blackmail Solomon into stepping down as king. And perhaps for that reason, as well as those murders, Joab has to die. Then fourthly and lastly, Solomon removes the threat of the curse. And this is the case of Shimei in verses 36 to 46. He was the man who had cursed David. And the disposal of Shimei is the disposal of that lingering curse. Because in the Old Testament, if you curse someone, you're actually making a commitment to destroy them and their family. Shimei had cursed David, and although he had apologised, he had never reversed the curse. So Solomon gives him explicit instructions to move into Jerusalem and never leave it. In those days, Jerusalem was a very small place, maybe just two or three hundred yards in diameter. The population was only two or three thousand people. And Shimei was confined there so that Solomon could keep a close eye on him. For three years he obeys, but then he has a couple of slaves who disappear, and he leaves Jerusalem to look for them, showing utter disdain for the king's command. But Solomon, you see, had been extremely clear. Just have a look at verse 37. He said, The day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die. Your blood will be on your own head. You see, Shimei didn't have to go after the slaves himself. He could have sent someone else. But the author of One Kings wants us to see in Shimei a spirit of indifference to the king's command. And Solomon takes this as an indication that Shimei has never withdrawn the curse that he placed on David. And if the curse is to be removed, that could only happen by the removal of Shimei himself. And the wording of Solomon's judgment in verses 44 and 45 is significant, I think, for our understanding of the whole chapter. Solomon says to Shimei, You know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for your wrongdoing. And if the curse is removed because the one who pronounced it has been removed, what then? Well, verse 45. But King Solomon will be blessed and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. And you see, by telling the story like this, the author of 1 Kings is saying that the last threat to King Solomon's reign and to the fulfilment of God's promise has been removed. And that lingering curse that was hanging over Solomon was turned by the Lord into blessing. Now, I mentioned earlier that when we read this chapter, we've got to recognise that at this stage, the kingdom of God was set in the context of one particular nation and within the context of civil powers and civil authority. But we're living in a different context. 
So to see how this applies to us as a New Testament church, what we need to do is to identify the underlying and unchanging principles that are at work in this chapter. There are four of them. I'm just going to mention them and then leave you to discuss them in home groups this week. First, please notice that God kept his promise to establish David's kingdom despite enormous opposition. That's principle number one. There must have been times when it seemed as if the opposition would win. But God did keep his promise. And 1 Kings is teaching us that this is how God always does it. God always establishes his kingdom through intense opposition. You've only got to ask Christians in countries on the world watch list and they'll tell you that's precisely how it is for them this morning. And every church everywhere needs to remember it. Principle number two. God establishes his kingdom despite the failures of his own servants. David's failures are all over the first two chapters of 1 Kings. And yet despite David's failure, God established his kingdom. Now today we seem to be hearing every week about the failures of pastors and church leaders in different countries. It almost seems as if no denomination has been left unscathed. But friends, God is still at work because he goes on establishing his kingdom in spite of these failures. Principle number three. God sometimes establishes his kingdom in ways that we don't like. You see, we can read a chapter like this and come away feeling, well, you know what, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm not sure that what happens here is moral or even in line with God's will. And maybe that's why one expert has described this chapter as a bloody mess. But I think it's helpful uh, to see this as a reminder that God is not prevented from fulfilling his purposes by what you and I regard as a bloody mess. I mean, we find the same thing throughout the history of the church. All the failures and the sin of God's people and the many failures of the church as a whole. But despite that, God in his mercy and wisdom works everything together for the good of those who love him. And I think that's a great encouragement to us that when we ourselves fail, as we do, or when we find ourselves in situations we can't understand or don't like, we can look back to passages like this and be reminded that God will never let his promise fail. And the final thing we need to learn from this chapter is that it's a picture of God's determination to preserve his kingdom. And that not only King David's great son, Solomon, but his greater son, the Lord Jesus, has been firmly established on the throne. And it reassures us that whatever we might be dealing with this morning, 
Jesus is reigning over God's kingdom and ultimately all threats to his kingdom will be perfectly and permanently removed. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that in spite of enormous opposition, you are keeping your promise to establish and preserve your everlasting kingdom. Thank you that with his precious blood, King Jesus has purchased a place in it for everyone who trusts in him. So whatever we might have to face this week, please make us strong to live for him and to serve him. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.